Uh, you might uh, remember January of 2020. You remember that? Life seemed a lot more normal uh, back in January of 2020 for most of us. And that's when we started a series going through the book of Acts. Uh, and we broke the series up intentionally into three different sections because Acts is kind of broken up into three different sections. And so we got through the first section. It kind of took us from January uh, through May. So kind of when the pandemic hit and nobody knew what was going on. And, and uh, so, so we kind of walked through that time by walking through the book of Acts together. We got to the end of chapter 7 in May and then took a break to do our little Don't Miss This One series and then Nehemiah leading up to Christmas. And now uh, we're going back into the second part of our Acts series uh, starting in Acts chapter 8. So go ahead and open your Bible there, but we're going to just do a quick review because it's been a while. It's been a few months now since we were last in the book of Acts. If you remember, there was a doctor and historian named Luke. And Luke was called on by God, the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to get an eyewitness account from a number of different people and put that together in a nice orderly account of the life, well, the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's called the Gospel according to Luke, which we have in our Bible. It talks about the work that Jesus came to do. Now, at the beginning of the book of Acts, which is the sequel to the book of Luke. So, same author, continuation of the story, the main character, I would argue, in the book of Acts is still Jesus. But, but Jesus' work continues in a different way in the book of Acts because what happens is, in the very first chapter, if you go ahead and just flip back to actually to chapter 1 of Acts really quick, just so we can see this with our eyes, in the very first chapter of the book of Acts, you see, starting in verse 6, that Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. So he's still going to be the main character of the book. He's still going to be the one doing the work, but it's going to have to happen in a different way because he's about to ascend into heaven. Now, the disciples still didn't have a totally great perspective on what exactly Jesus as the Messiah came to do. They had seen him live, certainly, and then die, and then rise again. But... But now they're wondering, okay, now that he's risen, is this when he comes to kind of do the political thing? Is this when he comes to make Israel great again? Is this, is this when this happens? That's what they basically ask in verse 6 of chapter 1. They say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this when, is this when we kind of become the nation we used to be once again? And Jesus has to correct them and point out that, yeah, he's got a plan for Israel. That's covered other, elsewhere in Scripture. But he's trying to point out to them here, my plan goes far beyond this. In fact, look at verse 8. Verse 8 says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That's kind of the outline of the book then. Chapters 1 through 7 roughly focus on the way that Holy Spirit empowered disciples of Jesus. That's how they're going to keep doing the work of Jesus. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is going to come and dwell into them. And those disciples are going to be His witnesses there in Jerusalem. And God, by His Holy Spirit, is going to bring about the conversion of many and the expansion of the church in that city. Starting with just a small group of people gathered in one room, expanding to thousands of people within the city of Jerusalem 
being converted and trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior. So if you keep going through the rest of the book, chapter 2, that's what happens. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in all of the believers. And then there's this kind of cycle that gets repeated. In the book of Acts, we often see a sign and wonder, something miraculous. A sign and wonder take place that attracts a crowd. And when the crowd is gathered, then somebody, empowered by the Holy Spirit, proclaims the gospel. And many in the crowd often hear the gospel. The Holy Spirit does a work in them so that they hear it and repent and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. You know what we call that? We call that conversion. So over and over in the book of Acts, we see conversions taking place. But that's not the only thing that happens when the gospel is proclaimed. In many cases, conversion happens, but another thing that happens when the gospel is proclaimed is controversy. So as we go ahead in the book of Acts, we see like in in chapter 4, in Acts chapter 4, if you look at verse 18, it says this, So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So, So it begins by just this, warning or threat. Hey, don't, don't you speak anymore in the name of Jesus in chapter 4. And then it gets ratcheted up a notch in chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verse 40. In chapter 5, verse 40, it says, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Okay? So, so now it's gone from just a warning or a threat to now If you're going to proclaim the gospel, you might get beaten and told not to do it anymore. And then where we left off in May is in chapter 7. And in chapter 7, one of the newly established deacons in the church, a man by the name of Stephen, is boldly proclaiming the gospel and he gets charged with blasphemy and here's how it ends for him. Look at chapter 7 verses 58 to 60. The very end of chapter 7, this is where we left off back in May, it says this, Then they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So there was conversion taking place, but there was great controversy. Ending even in chapter 7 with the death of one who was so bold as to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we turn now to this next section of the book, here's the tension. The tension is that Jesus said, that the gospel is going to be proclaimed and it's going to spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Well, if, if what's happening in Jerusalem is that the people who proclaim it are being beaten and it's some of them being killed now, how is the gospel supposed to spread? This doesn't seem like a great recipe for how expansion is going to take place. How's it supposed to expand? Well, that's what we're going to see in chapters 8 through 12, and especially today in the opening verses of chapter 8. And so, you have your Bible open, you're in Acts chapter 8, and if you're able to, would you stand as we read the very Word of God? 
Uh, First, let's pray. Father, I thank you that by your Holy Spirit, Luke wrote down each of these details. Thank you for the story of the book of Acts that that Holy Spirit-empowered followers of Jesus proclaiming the gospel get to see the work of Jesus continue as your church expanded from Jerusalem to then Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. Father, I thank you that that's a work that continues today. That, that, That your church continues to expand across the globe And I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in us in such a way that we would kind of maybe be knocked off of our kind of like comfortable, normal, uh, humdrum kind of lives and see that we're a part of something much bigger than we normally think about. And that we would be willing even to give our lives to suffer if that need happen in order that the gospel might go forward to more people. I pray that the gospel would be heard clearly even this morning as we meet. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 8, 1 through 8, God's word says this. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for Unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Amen. You can be seated. So in your bulletin there, there is a sermon notes page that has the Life Group Guide with it. And you're going to see that the title of the sermon today is Breakout. Because we see a number of different things breaking out here in Acts chapter 8. What had started in chapter 7 with the persecution and execution even of one man is now spreading. Because there's people in positions of power, like this guy named Saul who we're introduced to here. We're going to get to know him a lot better as the book goes on. But now we're just, just kind of, his name is just kind of dropped in here as one of the powerful people who is approving of and even maybe overseeing some of the persecution against these new Christians. And the result is, according to verse 1, that when the great persecution arises against the church in Jerusalem, the church scatters. Do you see that there in verse 1? And they were all scattered. And where did they scatter? Well, the regions of Judea and Samaria. Judea is just the region surrounding Jerusalem itself, and Samaria, the region just to the north of Jerusalem. The church is scattered there. Notice, though, that the apostles stay back in Jerusalem. It's certainly dangerous for them to be there, but that's kind of right now where the the church is centered, and so they stay there in Jerusalem, but a number of other people are scattered throughout the countryside in the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, note also verse 2. 
That persecution comes, it brings about scattering. But listen, listen to what happens in verse 2. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Acts is certainly focused on the advancing of the mission, but it's also acknowledging what the church is doing here is the church is pausing, it seems, to lament or to grieve over the loss of one of their own. Now certainly, good news is that, that Stephen loved Jesus. So even he, his words sound a lot like Jesus' words. When Jesus was on the cross, you remember that? When Jesus is hanging on the cross, Stephen, what he says at the end of chapter 7 that we just read a little bit of go, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen knew, and the people around him knew, that when Stephen died, he was going to be with his risen Savior. That's where Stephen was headed. Yet, what are they doing in verse 2? Making great lamentation over him. Which is why when we gathered together with the family of Amber yesterday, we could say, great confidence because of her faith and trust in Jesus that she went immediately to be with him yet it's also appropriate for us to grieve over her loss as we see the church doing here in verse 2 but then verse 3 gets into a little more detail saying that Saul was ravaging the church that word ravaging means to ruin or to devastate ravaging most of the time when they used that word, it was used in reference to mangling of wild beasts. So you've seen roadkill on the side of the road that maybe has been hit by something, and then a number of other scavengers have kind of come and picked that thing apart. That's what's happening. That's the word they're using here to refer to what was happening to the church at the hands of powerful people like Saul. Saul was ravaging the church. Now, now, does that mean that a few bold people like Stephen, you know, those bold enough to publicly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, just a few of those, you know, crazy street preacher guys on the corner, are they the ones being persecuted? It's bigger than that. It's more widespread than that. Did you see what it says there in verse 3? Verse 3 says, In entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This persecution isn't just like people saying mean things about Christian on social media, right? That's not the kind of persecution we're talking about here. We're talking about ravaging the church. We're talking about religious leaders with authority, people like Saul, entering into households and dragging out men and women to commit them to prison. Now, now imagine living in Jerusalem at that time. Thousands of people have heard the gospel. And their lives have been turned upside down. They're now followers of Jesus. They've been converted, from, from, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the domain of the sun. They've been spiritually orphaned before and now made adopted sons and daughters of Jesus the King. They were spiritually dead. Now they're born again. And now... Their new sisters and brothers and mothers and fathers and sons and daughters are getting dragged out of their homes for their faith in Jesus and committed to prison. Surely some of them wondering who's going to be the next Stephen, who's the next one who's going to be executed. And so many of them scatter. They leave the place that probably for most of them they had always lived. The jobs they had always had, they leave that. They scatter 
become religious refugees. Pause to, to bring this to our day. Is persecution still possible in our day? Well, certainly. In fact, persecution is the present day persistent reality for many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. Open Doors USA estimates that 340 million Christians live in a nation where they experience high levels of persecution just for following Jesus. That's one in eight believers worldwide. If you go to Open Doors USA, there's this map that you can find there. Every, every year they update it. The 50 most dangerous places in the world to be a Christian. 50 most dangerous nations. The, those in dark red, I don't know if you can see that from where you're at, but those in dark red are the top 10 most dangerous nations to follow Jesus. Persecution is a persistent everyday reality for many of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So, so what? what? What do we do with that? Well, one, three things. One, we should give thanks that we're not in the top 50 and maybe stop complaining so much about how hard it is to be a Christian in America. Number two, we should grieve for our brothers and sisters in Christ. As the church saw one of their brothers be executed. They grieved. As we hear of persecution of brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, one of the things we should do, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, if one part of the body suffers, every part suffers with it. We should grieve for brothers and sisters in Christ persecuted because of their faith in Jesus. And of course, we should pray. Praying, yes, for their protection. but praying also that God would work in and through them in the midst of persecution. If you, if you want to just be more intentional in praying for our persecuted brothers and sisters, you can actually download a prayer app from Open Doors. They have a, an app that, that kind of just reminds you, gives you a couple stories and reminds you of things to pray. So opendoorsusa.org, I think, is where you go or just search in the app store uh, for that. So persecution breaks out in Jerusalem. And that causes the people in Jerusalem to break out of Jerusalem. And where do they go? They go to the regions of Judea and Samaria. So, so what happens when they get there? They're religious refugees. Look at verse 4. Now, maybe before we look at verse 4, just a reminder. Here's who this doesn't include. Remember, the apostles, those kind of most experienced and equipped for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, where are they? They're still in Jerusalem. Those that have scattered into the countryside are primarily just normal, everyday people like you and I. Farmers, carpenters, moms, families, they've all moved out into the countryside, forced to flee from their home, probably wondering, like, what am I going to do for income? Where are we going to live? Important questions that they would need to address. But what does Luke tell us that they did? Verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. That's what they went and did. I'm sure they did have to find some source of income. They did have to find a place to live. But these normal everyday people becoming quickly religious refugees, scattering into the countryside, what are they doing? Well, they're preaching the word. The Greek word there would just mean like, if, if we transliterated it even a little bit more, it would be like gospeling. That's what they're doing. They're gospeling or they're good newsing. The people went out good newsing. The people went out gospeling. They went out evangelizing, right? They went out and took the good news of Jesus and they proclaimed it all around to the people all around them. 
They're facing the very real threat of persecution. They're scattered, and this is how the church begins to expand. So that tension, like, how, how, is, how is a persecuted church going to expand beyond Jerusalem? Well, through persecution. The persecution that brings about a scattering that pushes people to go to a place they wouldn't normally go. More on that here in just a moment. But a point of application first. Question Are we preparing ourselves and the next generation to proclaim the gospel even if things get worse because of it? Is a day coming when the United States of America breaks into the top 50 list of open doors, most dangerous places to be a Christian? Maybe. Maybe not. We don't know. But regardless, church, we should probably stop making excuses of why it's so hard for us to share the gospel We know that a thriving church is not dependent on the right people being in political office. A thriving church is not dependent on holding on to every freedom we've historically enjoyed. In fact, if you look historically at how it works, most often when we're most comfortable, that leads to complacency. Comfort often leads to complacency. We can see even in the world today the ways in which persecution is what brings about the growth of the gospel in many places. So maybe our prayers sometimes shift from God protect us and make us comfortable and take away all these barriers from us and instead God help us to boldly proclaim the gospel even if we need to suffer for it. How do we become people like that? Well, I I think we need to look to Jesus. We're going to be motivated first and foremost by the gospel itself. And so, if you just turn really quickly to 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter is one of those who is a leader in the early church. He will himself experience some pretty significant persecution. Already has at this point. Will continue to do more. And he writes this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. He says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Church, the good news is that Jesus suffered once for sins. Jesus, the righteous one, suffering for the unrighteous ones. That's us. Why? He did it that He might bring us to God because we couldn't, we couldn't make up the gap ourselves. The gap between our unrighteousness and our holy and righteous God, we we have no means on our own of making up that gap. Yet God, in His great mercy, sends His Son, Jesus the Righteous One, to die for unrighteous ones that He might bring us to God. That's what Jesus came and suffered for. Love the song that we're going to sing at the end of the worship service. There is a fountain. Makes the gospel really clear. We who were once separated from sin are brought to him through the substitutionary death of Jesus. Do you believe that? If, if not, you really are far from God and you don't have what it takes in yourself to make up the gap. I would urge you to trust in Jesus today. And if you, like me, trust in Jesus, maybe a point of application for us would be God. Make me willing uh, to suffer 
in order to do good, in order that those who are lost around us might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and repent and turn to Jesus and be saved. The gospel broke out, and it broke out through persecution. So persecution breaks out, the people break out, the gospel breaks out, and then verses 5 to 8, the last verses we're going to look at today, we're going to see joy break out. Usually something that starts with persecution breaking out, how's that supposed to end with joy breaking out? Like, how do, you, how, do you, how do you draw that line from persecution breaking out to joy breaking out? Well, verse five, before, before we look at verse 5 to 8 a little more closely, just some quick background because it's going to help this to make, I think, a lot more sense. Samaria, uh, Elijah, you want to put that map up? Great. Okay, so Samaria is the region to the north of Jerusalem. When, when they talk about going down to Samaria... He's just talking about going down in elevation. They're not thinking of a map and going south. They're going north, but they're going down in elevation from Jerusalem to Samaria. Now, now Judea is the area surrounding Jerusalem. Samaria is this different area. And the people that resided in Samaria were Samaritans. And the Samaritans residing in Samaria were basically half-Jewish. They followed their own version of God's law, and they worshipped in their own temple. And the Jews living in Jerusalem were conditioned from a young age to despise the Samaritans. But now, as they are persecuted, the new believers there in Jerusalem are persecuted, and they have to flee. Where do they flee? To Samaria, living amongst Samaritans. And what are they going to do there? Well, we get an example of one guy, a guy named Philip, who we were introduced to back in chapter 6. He's another one of the deacons like Stephen, given by God the role of overseeing a food distribution program for widows, yet he's one of those that has now left the city and gone to Samaria. What's he going to do there? Look at verse 5. But there was a man named Simon. Oops, sorry, that's verse 9. Don't look at that one yet. We'll do that next week. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. That's what he went to do. Okay, what do you do when you're with Samaritans, people that maybe from a young age you've been taught to despise? What do you do when you're a religious refugee fleeing from persecution? Well, you go talk about Jesus to some other people. And listen to what happened. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Again, God using signs to help people to hear the gospel clearly. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And the result? So there was much joy in that city. Joy breaks out in a Samaritan city. Of all places, this is where joy is breaking out. Now, the Jewish Christians from Jerusalem, they could have been all sorts of upset about having to flee from their homes and move into the land of these dirty Samaritans. And the Samaritans, they could have been all upset that their land was now being flooded with people who they assumed didn't like them. But what happened instead was these normal, everyday people who had been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, they proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Miracles are done, the gospel is proclaimed, and joy breaks out 
in Samaria. Church, we often wrongly assume that joy is going to come when our situation gets better. But that's not true. Joy doesn't come from comfortable lives. God's plan for the evangelization of the world is not usually pushed forward by our own comfort. Joy comes when normal people with situations that are far from ideal proclaim the gospel wherever God puts them. So, do you fit that category of people whose situations are far from ideal? Like maybe your health is far from ideal or maybe just not ideal right now. Maybe your job is not ideal. Maybe your job isn't where you want to be. Maybe family life is a struggle for you. Maybe single life is a struggle for you. Maybe you often get tired. Maybe you often get frustrated. Maybe you often deal with anger. Maybe you're often anxious. Maybe you deal with depression. Joy comes not when we get all that stuff ironed out. But when we let God work through us to be humble servants who take the gospel wherever he puts us. Jesus said that they're not just going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, but also in Judea and Samaria. And it took persecution to get them there. But God's plan would not be thwarted. We're going to close today by singing a song written by a man who spent most of his life dealing with some pretty deep depression. Yet he was a man who knew that every guilty stain of his sin was washed away by the blood of Jesus. And that living and dying, he would be forever proclaiming the power of Jesus to save. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I'm thankful that you do give us your Holy Spirit. Not just to be people who would understand. We know we need your Spirit to rightly understand your Word, but we also need your Holy Spirit to help us to rightly apply your Word. To become people who, even if it might bring about suffering, are willing to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever you put us, even when our situation is far from ideal. God, we're, we do all of this, we want to do all of this, motivated by looking to Jesus, who suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus, who shed his blood, that all of our guilty stains would be washed away. That, that we recognize that, that though we're just as vile as the one cursing Christ on the other cross, that we can be washed by the blood of the Lamb. And God, we look forward, those of us who are in Christ, look forward to that day when this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lying silent in the grave will sing a nobler, sweeter song of your power to save. And so, God, it's a joy for us to even join our voices in this day to sing of your power to save. And I pray that it would propel us to be people who proclaim boldly your saving work to the lost people around us even this week. 
In Jesus' name, amen.